Okay, I'm being very careful. I don't want to dump the Jenga tower. I've been very nervous about this. I practiced carrying it up and down the stairs a couple times, and I did it. That's a good start to the year. Okay. (laughs) You know, a lot of people assume that faith is just like this tower of blocks. It appears to be very solid, very stable. That is until you start to examine it, right? If you ask some questions, if you poke and you prod, if you subject it to even just a little bit of pressure, most people think that it would all just come crashing down, right? That means that as a result, there are lots of people that have never seriously considered faith in Jesus because they believe that it wouldn't stand up to even basic levels of scrutiny. They don't take it seriously. There are many Christians who have never critically examined their faith. They've never asked any hard questions because they're afraid that if they start asking hard questions, they're going to find out that their faith is as fragile as a house of cards. And so they're like, you know what? I don't even want to go there. Let's ignore the questions. Let's just pretend like they don't exist and I'll keep moving on like everything's okay. Then there are those people that can't help it. I don't know if you're one of those. I am definitely one of those. You can't help but ask questions. You can't help but examine things. You can't help but be curious. Maybe you have that kind of curious mind in every area of life and existence. You're always asking questions and trying to find answers and reading Wikipedia and watching YouTube tutorials and all of those different things. And so you're compelled to dismantle your faith. You're, compar- you're compelled to pull it apart and examine it and see if it's robust and it's trustworthy and it actually has some substance to it. Is it coherent? Is it satisfying? And then there are others who might experience pressure. Maybe it's from family and friends or media, the world around them. And they constantly hear about how Christianity is a sham and it's a scam and like it's regressive and harmful. And you're starting to ask questions and you're like, I don't know, is it? The Bible says a lot of really terrible stuff. And so maybe it is not any good. And maybe it's not something that we should have in the 21st century. There is a, a tendency, maybe even an inclination in our world today for people of faith to do what we, called, what we call deconstruction. Deconstruction is tearing apart or tearing down something that you believe to see what it's made of and to see whether or not it's both true and it's good. Now, we're going to discover in this series that deconstruction is not a bad thing at all. The problem is very often in our world today, deconstruction ends at deconversion. People tear apart their faith. Then once they get it apart, they have absolutely no idea how to put it all back together. Or if they do try to reassemble it, they refashion it into something that resembles nothing like historic Christianity. And that creates all kinds of problems in the future. So today we're kicking off this brand new series called Tear It Down, questioning your faith without losing it. And I've titled the the series this way because I want you to know that you should be questioning the faith. You should be questioning your faith. You should be questioning the faith. Questioning the faith is a good and necessary part of uh, being a follower of Jesus. Whether you're an outsider, 
you're a skeptic or a seeker and you're wondering why your sister got religious all of a sudden and you're like, what is going on here? So you're trying to pull it apart and tease apart what's so attractive uh, to, to your family member. Or if you're a Christian and you're like, you know what? I've grown up in church. I always kind of knew what I believe, but I have no clue why I believe it. Or if you're somebody that, that had been handed a theological system, a belief system, and it was just given to you. And then you started to tear it apart and critically examine it. And you started to have all sorts of issues and problems and you tore it all to pieces. And now you're left wondering, is it even possible to build something back in its place that is healthier and stronger and more Christ-like and Christ-centered? This series is for you. I am so excited about this one. I've been excited for quite a long time. I think it's going to be a real blessing to you. This series is part apologetic and it's part encouragement. It's part permission and part caution as well. By the time we finish this particular series, I hope that I can help you to learn to question your faith in ways that are intellectually honest and spiritually faithful. When we ask questions, if we're going to examine the faith, we want both of those. We don't want to be like intellectually dishonest. We don't want to ask the easy, softball, superficial kind of questions. We want to ask the real questions. And we want to know how to ask them in a way that helps us to grow closer to God rather than pushing us further away. So this morning, I want to start with a passage in which Jesus' disciples were forced to confront what they believe and why they believed it. And I think this interaction that they have, the answers that they give, the process that they seem to be going through here, I think it can teach us an awful lot when we're trying to figure out just how like stable and steady our faith really is. The passage is Matthew chapter number 16. And it begins in verse number 13. It's only like four verses, but man, there's a lot of goodness in here. Matthew chapter number 16, verse number 13. This is what the scripture says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? Well, the disciples replied, some say John the Baptist, some say the prophet Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the other Old Testament prophets. Then Jesus asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you're the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from any human being. Let's pray real quick. God, would you illuminate your word in our hearts today? Would you teach us? Would you help us to grow and to be strengthened in our faith and in our confidence that you truly are the Messiah, the Christ, the son of the living God? We pray this in your name. Amen. You know, this conversation, it takes place kind of like midway through Jesus' ministry. So Jesus' ministry was three years long, and this is probably at about the halfway point in his teaching and his public ministry. And by this point, his fame as a teacher and a healer, a miracle worker, has spread throughout Israel. People all over the country are buzzing about him. And so Jesus asked the disciples one day, it's just them, they're kind of by themselves. And he says, you know, who do people say the son of man 
man is. Now, before we get to their response, what I want to do for a moment is focus on that phrase, son of man. What does that phrase, son of man, mean? It occurs often in the New Testament, and I think it causes people a lot of confusion and consternation, all right? Son of man was Jesus' preferred title for himself. Jesus called himself many things. He was called many things by other people, but the way that he most commonly and seemed to prefer to refer to himself was as the son of man, the son of man. Now, I know in our world today, this really does confuse some people because you've heard me and maybe other pastors say, you know, Jesus was God in the flesh. He was deity incarnate. And then you see in this verse and in many others, Jesus saying something that might imply that he's not actually God. He's just the son of a man in the same way that I'm a son of a man and you're a daughter of a man and and things like that. So people get hung up on this phrase. They get really confused. Uh, this, This idea that Jesus is not really the son of God or he's not really God incarnate, it starts to seem unstable. Maybe something we can pluck out and toss aside because Jesus even said something that makes us think that maybe this block isn't really what the church has said that this block is. All right. Now, there is way more to this particular title than what it seems in English or what it seems for people who don't know the Old Testament scriptures in particular very well, all right? So I want you to notice a couple of things about this way that Jesus refers to himself as the son of man. First, I want you to notice that Jesus calls himself the son of man. He doesn't say I am a son of man. He uses a definite article. He is the son of man. That him at least, and I think it says a whole lot more, that there is something singularly unique about Jesus. He's not a son of man. He is the son of man. Secondly, I want you to notice that the phrase is capitalized. It's capitalized for a reason, because this is not merely a description. It's actually a title. It's a title that Jesus applies to himself. So where does the title come from? Did he make it up? Did he give himself his own title? No, actually, this is a direct quote from an Old Testament passage in the book of Daniel. The book of Daniel, I wrote this many, many years ago. No, it's not really my book, okay? We just share the name. Daniel chapter number seven. Now I want you to look at verses 13 and 14, okay? This was written a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. Daniel chapter number seven, he's having visions, dreams. God is speaking to the prophet in these moments. And he says, as my vision continued that night, I saw someone like a son of man. There's that phrase. Now I want to pause here for just a moment because the way that Daniel is saying this, he says a son of man. So he's having a vision and we're going to see the vision is in heaven, but in heaven, the person, the subject of the vision is someone who looks human. Somebody who is in human form. This is in distinction to like the prophet Isaiah who had visions of angels and angels were wild guys. If you know anything about what an angel actually looks like in the Bible, it is not a fat little baby with wings. Okay. (laughs) So he has this vision of a son of man. He says, I see a character and it looks an awful lot like a human. And yet the way that he phrases it, he is someone who is like a son of man. He's hinting even here. I don't know there's something different. There's something unique. He's not just a man or the son of a man, but he is like a son of man. Okay. I saw someone like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the 
ancient one, the father. He approached father God and he was led into his presence. And check this out. He was given authority, honor, and sovereignty over all the nations of the world so that people of every race and nation and language would obey him. His rule is eternal. It will never end. His kingdom will never be destroyed. So I want you to think for a moment about what Jesus is communicating to us when he calls himself the son of man, when he associates himself with this vision of the Messiah in Daniel chapter number seven, far from saying like, guys, I'm just a man like the rest of you. I'm a son of man like you're a son of man. No, he is saying that there is something uniquely special, uniquely powerful about him. There is no one who has ever lived or ever will live who is like Jesus Christ. That phrase, son of man, communicates his power, his authority, his majesty, and his deity. I got to tell you guys, the more you study it, the more you realize that this block of Christ's deity, that he was God in the flesh, not just a man and a good teacher, but the more you read what Jesus actually said, the more convinced I am that what the church has communicated for all these years is actually true. Okay, back to Matthew number 16. I hope that's helpful. Some of you guys have gotten hung up on that in the past. Back to Matthew 16, though. This conversation that Jesus has with his disciples, he asks them who people think he is, and they reveal that there is kind of this diverse range of beliefs about his identity. So some people say that he's John the Baptist, which is kind of funny because John the Baptist is Jesus' cousin. They're like a month apart in age. They were both alive at the same time. They grew up on the same playgrounds. John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus in the River Jordan. So I don't know how they're the same person, okay? This is not a particularly good uh, belief, but some people believe that he was John the Baptist. Others believe that either he was a reincarnation of various Old Testament prophets or the Old Testament's prophet, uh, the Old Testament prophet's spirit had come upon Jesus and he was preaching in the same manner of Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, or, or as Ezekiel or Elijah or whoever it might be. So they give him all of these different conceptions of who people in Jesus' day are saying, that he is. And I bet many of these people in the first century, they had like robust theological systems that they had constructed to put Jesus in the box that they put him in. So like in order to believe that he was John the Baptist, they probably had all sorts of beliefs about who God was in the scripture and who we are and how heaven and the afterlife works and all of these different things in order to believe that he was reincarnated from one of these other prophets. And some of these belief systems were probably very robust. They were probably pretty popular and, and things like that. And I got to tell you, in the, in the 21st century, we're not really any different than they were in the first century. Right. Like today, there are as many opinions about who Jesus is as there are people in the world. Yeah. You can ask anybody what they believe about Jesus and then ask their neighbor or their wife or somebody on this other side of the planet, and you're going to get a different answer. They may be close, but they're almost never going to be the same. Now, up until this point in your life, you might have simply accepted what other people told you about Jesus. You may have been handed a belief system and you just accepted it. Maybe your Nana was a woman of great faith 
And so your family just kind of inherited what she believed. It's like, I don't know. I mean, I, I can't say that I don't believe it, but I don't know. It's just like our family is religious. We always have been. I'm not necessarily, but I don't know. It's, it's kind of nice. It's like a family thing we do, right? It might be that you went to a Christian school and, and they made you take systematic theology. And they, and they said, here's everything you need to know about God and eternity and the infinite and deity and scripture. We've got it all figured out. No need to even ask questions because the answers are all right here in the textbook. They gave you the impression. And in some cases, they didn't just give you the impression. They outright told you questions are not welcome. Don't ask those questions because smarter people than you have already come up with the answer. In fact, you probably wouldn't understand it anyway. So quit doubting. Just close your mouth and listen, nod your head and say yes, and you'll go to heaven when you die. (laughs) It might be that you come from a generation that grew up a little bit differently. And, and maybe now you've got a friend group around you and they, you're gathering from them that God is kind of the, the wink, wink party God. And he's like, you know what? You do you. It's okay. Just be happy. And you know, in the end, you'll settle down and you'll do the right things. And we'll all go to heaven and sing Kumbaya when we die. All right. Or you might've gone to university and you had a professor and the professor has convinced you or at least concerned you that Jesus was not a real historical person, much less the son of God. And so you're starting to like wonder, like, how stable is this block here? How's, how much can I trust all of these things that I have received over time? There are all of these beliefs that we have received about God, about the scripture, about Jesus, about ourselves. And they come from like an infinite number of sources. We pick them up from music and movies. We pick them up from our family members and friends. We pick them up from books we've read and from things we've been taught in school, all of those different things. And so that's why the question that Jesus poses to the disciples in verse number 15 is so incredibly important. Amidst this backdrop of religious pluralism in the first century, which is exactly what we have in the 21st century. And, and amidst all of these competing and contradictory claims about Christ, he looks them in the eye and he says, but who do you say that I am? Don't worry about what they say. Who cares if some fool thinks I'm John the Baptist? He doesn't even know that's my cousin. Who cares if somebody thinks I'm a reincarnated prophet, Elijah, they don't even know the old Testament well enough to realize people don't get incarnated. Don't worry about what other people say. What do you say? What do you believe? Not what your pastor taught you. Not what your mom told you was true. What do you believe? Who do you say that I am? Not what your wife believes. Not what your parents believe. What do you believe? Who do you say I am? Listen to this. Jesus invited the disciples to question what they've heard and to examine what they might've been told. He pushes them, make your own conclusions. Come to your own resolution about what you believe and why you believe it. Yeah, I know they say all that, but what do you believe? Maybe I can put it like this. I want to say it as plainly as I possibly can for the benefit of somebody in the room today. Questions are always welcome in the Christian faith. They are always welcome in the Christian faith. I know you might've been a part of some Christian circles in which they communicated implicitly or explicitly that questions were not welcome. They were wrong. Questions are always welcome in the Christian faith. In fact, I would go so far to say is that questions are required in the Christian faith. Too often the church has silenced questions. We've given shallow answers to complex um, and, and sincere questions that our world has posed. And that, listen, shame on us for that. Shame on us. 
we have what I believe is the most satisfying explanation for the world that we live in. We have what I believe, what I've been convinced of personally is the best worldview, perspective, understanding of who we are, why we're here, what we should be doing with ourselves, how we should relate to one another, the rest of creation, what makes life matter. We have all of those. And the moment we tell somebody to stop asking questions, then we lose the opportunity to give them the answers that they're searching for. I I, I think I'd like to put it like this. Questions don't make you a skeptic. They make you a seeker. Questions don't make you a skeptic. They make you a seeker. You say, oh man, but I just, I doubt and have a lot of frustrations and I'm not sure that I believe. And like, I want to, I want to ask and I want to push and I want to prod and I want to test. And I, then I want to, I want to push you and see how far you can go in giving me an answer. I like, listen, that doesn't mean you're a skeptic. It doesn't mean you're a bad person. It doesn't mean you're a bad Christian. It literally means you're a seeker. And can I let you in on a secret? God loves seekers. God loves seekers. In Jeremiah chapter number 29, he says, if you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. In Matthew chapter number seven, verse seven, Jesus says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. If you're a seeker, the church is the perfect place for you to be. Because it it, it should be. And what we're trying to create here at Connect is a safe place for you to ask questions, a safe place for you to receive answers, and then a safe place for you to question the answers that we give to you. Are you with me? Seekers are welcome. Questions are a part of being a Christian. If you have never questioned your faith, you have never examined your faith. I would question whether it's really your faith or not. You haven't really engaged with it if you've never asked any sincere questions. I want you to also notice here back in Matthew 16, that when Jesus asks the disciples, who do you say that I am? He not only gives them an opportunity, okay? It's not just an opportunity to question what they've heard. He forces their hand. You with me? He's not like, hey guys, if you ever want to talk about my identity or anything, I'm here, let me know. Just, just tap me on the shoulder and we'll wander off. No, no, no. He's like, what do you believe about me? Tell me. Like that is confrontational. Are you with me? Listen, God very often doesn't merely invite questions. He instigate questions. He'll put you in situations and circumstances in life in which you're forced to ask the questions that you've been avoiding this whole time. Or you're forced to seek answers that you haven't found in the places that you have been looking. God not only welcomes questions, sometimes he requires them. He forces them. He instigates them because he understands that when we ask the right questions and we start to receive the right answers, we don't merely gain information, we gain understanding. And understanding is something our world desperately needs. You go to the book of Proverbs and you know what you find? Proverbs is like full of all of these encouragements to go get wisdom and seek answers and all this stuff. But it's never about information. It's always about understanding. In fact, getting understanding is one of the primary commands or encouragements from the book of Proverbs. It's not merely enough to get facts and information, systematic theologies and answers you need to have wisdom and understanding to go along with it. In order to get wisdom and understanding, you have to ask 
the right kind of questions and you have to be in the right sort of community to find the right kind of answers. I think we should be like Jesus. Jesus loved questions. He was not scared of questions. In fact, one of the reasons he is the consummate teacher, he is the master communicator, is because more often than not, when somebody came to Jesus and asked him a question, he didn't give him a sermon in response. He didn't give them a quick pat answer. He asked them a question in return. And the question in return causes them to question the question that they asked in the first place. Why are you asking that? Why do you think this is important? Why do you think this matters? Hmm? You see, Jesus was not afraid of questions and neither should we be. By the way, this is so fascinating. I just learned this this week, actually. I don't think that I've ever, maybe somebody's pointed this out, but maybe they haven't. I, this blew my mind. Jesus asked 305 questions throughout the gospels. Somebody actually sat down and counted. I don't know if I'm grateful or sad for this person. <laughs> my hope is that it's like a researcher that gets paid to do this sort of thing and not some dude in his basement. But either way, somebody took the time to count the number of times that Jesus asked a question and it's 305. Here's what's fascinating. It, of the 305 questions that Jesus asked during his earthly ministry, um, they were very much the same kinds of questions that we as normal everyday humans ask. The, the what questions and the who questions and the how questions and the why questions. Man, like you, you read these 305 and you'll see those same sorts of interrogatories, those same sorts of questions and queries that we all ask. There is one type of question that Jesus never asked. Not one time ever in his entire three and a half year ministry did he ever ask a question about when. He asked what? He asked who? Why? How? He never asked when. I find that so fascinating, maybe a little bit convicting because I get consumed with when. When, God, am I finally going to get X, Y, or Z? When am I going to get healthy? When am I going to find a spouse? When am I going to get my promotion? When is life going to be better? When is life going to get worse? Because it's been going too good for too long at this point. When are things going to go wrong? We get consumed with when. Jesus never once asked the question. <laughs> Now, the, he, he did say when in a few questions, but let me give you an example of the way Jesus used the word when. He's, he's speaking to the disciples in one passage, and he says, when I sent you out with just a bag and a staff, did you lack anything? Now, he's asking a question that includes the word when, but it has no time component to it, really. It's not the way that you and I ask when. Jesus was totally unconcerned with the when question. Why? Because I believe he had true faith in God. The when really doesn't matter. We can ask how, we can ask why, we can ask what, we can ask who. The when is up to God. Totally and completely, in many cases, up to God. So make of that what you will. It's the whole point, all right? Let me give you a question for reflection here. And, and I, I just want you to process this question. This is really for you, um, but, but it's an invitation as well. So here's the question, okay? What is a question about the faith that you have wanted to ask but you've been too nervous to. You, you haven't felt like you had the right avenue or you tried to pose it at one point in the past and you got shut down. And so now you're afraid if you bring it up again, then you know, you're gonna get shut down again. 
maybe you're afraid that this one question is going to expose that like if you pluck out the block, everything's going to collapse and that really scares you. So you don't want to pull at that thread. You don't want to tug at that particular stone. I understand. But what question have you wanted to ask? And for whatever reason, you haven't been able to. I want to say to you once again, this is a church where it's okay to ask questions. This is a place where it's safe to voice your, your, your uncertainty to ask for help, to show that you're engaging with your faith. You want it to be strong and stable and trustworthy. And you know, the only way that you're going to get there is to seek answers. God tells us we can seek and we will find. And so I, I encourage you, if you have questions that you want answered, but you haven't felt like you had the appropriate avenue, would you contact me? Dan at connectcalgary.ca. Internet, please don't spam me. Dan at connectcalgary.ca. I almost didn't say it because I knew this one was being live streamed, but you know what? It's okay. If you have a question, I, I get two, three theological, ecclesiological questions a week. Maybe your question this week is like, what does ecclesiological mean? All right. Uh, I can't even say it. <laughs> this is what I do. This is what I do. So I want to help but I can't help if you don't ask the questions. This is your opportunity to ask the questions you've always wanted to, but maybe you've been too nervous. To. Okay, let's start to wrap it up. Back in Matthew chapter number 16, the question that Jesus forces the disciples to consider is the most important one of all. Who do you say that I am? There are an infinite number of questions that we could ask about like life and existence, meaning and faith. But in the end, this is the question that will matter the most. This is the question that we've got to get right. Who do I say Jesus really is? See, what you believe about Jesus forms the foundation that you build your life on. The answer to this question will determine what gets constructed on top. What you believe about Jesus forms the foundation of what you build in your, or what you, on which you build your life. The answer to that question, it really does shape every other conclusion that you will arrive at. Um, what you believe about yourself, how you believe people should treat one another, how you use your wealth, what you spend your Sundays doing, what you won't spend your Friday nights doing. All of that is dictated by how you answer this question. Who do you say Jesus is. Now, Christ communicates this much. He tells us this much in a different passage, Matthew chapter number seven, verses 24 to 27. Uh, these verses will be here on the screen. I just want you to read along with me. He says this, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Anyone who listens to me and follows my teaching is wise, like a person who builds their house on a rock. That is someone who builds on a solid foundation. Though the rain comes in torrents and the floodwaters rise and the winds beat against that house, it won't collapse because it's built on bedrock. But anyone who hears my teaching and doesn't obey it is foolish. Like a person who builds a house on sand. When the rains and floods come and the winds beat against that house, it will collapse with a mighty crash. Jesus says, listen, what you believe about me will determine everything else that gets constructed on top. It is the foundational question of your life. You're like, no, no, my foundational question is like, who am I and what should I be doing with my life? And where's my Prince Charming? You know, no, those are all secondary questions. You will answer those questions differently based on how you answer the first question, because this one is foundational. 
This is the one. It forms the basis on which you will construct the rest of your life. If you believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, then you will build a life with eternity in mind. If you believe that he was nothing more than a rabbi and everything the church says about him is a myth that's grown up over the centuries, then you're going to choose to live in such a way that says, I want to maximize my pleasure and happiness in the next 60 years. And if that leads me to do some things that are unwise, unhealthy, illegal, or immoral, oh well, because I only have a few decades and I got to make the most out of it. What you say about Jesus is the foundation on which you will build your life. When you're building a structure, I'm not much of a builder. I actually fixed our dishwasher. It was broken. I took it apart. I flipped it over. I messed with the, please don't clap for that. That's so embarrassing, but I fixed it. Now I'm not a builder. There are a few builders here. Okay. You know that if you get your foundation right, you can construct Almost anything. It's like an infinite number of structures on top of it if the foundation is right. You can rearrange all the rooms. You can move the kitchen over here. You could do two stories or three stories or one story. You could build almost anything if your foundation is right. But if your foundation is not right, nothing you put on top is going to be secure. Eventually it will crumble. Eventually you will find out that it is not as stable as you needed it to be. If you get your foundation correct, everything will be okay. If you get your foundation wrong, nothing will be okay. And so it is with our faith. Listen, I know you have a million questions because I have a million and one. How should we respond to the seeming tension between Genesis one and two and science? Does God really predestine people to heaven and hell? Can a true Christian vote for that political party or this political party? I know that you have questions and those are all questions that are worth asking. And there are good answers to all of those questions, but you're not going to come up with a secure answer to any one of those questions unless you get this one right. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because that is the foundation on which you're building your life. To use this Jenga illustration again for just a moment, I want to be really, really clear here, okay? Jesus is the foundation that you're supposed to be building on. All of your personal beliefs, theological beliefs, political beliefs, uh, relational beliefs, whatever, all of it should be built on the foundation of Jesus. Hear what I'm about to say. I am not telling you that Jesus is the bottom row of these blocks. He is way more steady, stable, and secure than any of that. I'm not telling you that Jesus is the table on which this tower of blocks is resting. Jesus is not even the foundation of this wonderful building. He is like the whole freaking continent, you guys, that we are standing on right now. If you build your life on Christ, it will be so stable, so secure. You can grow up. You can grow out. You can ask questions and not be afraid. You can express your doubts and not lose your faith because you are built on a foundation that is able to support the breadth of human existence, the width of human questions and frailties and uncertainty. God welcomes it. Jesus can handle it. The Bible is not going to collapse because you ask questions about it. So start asking questions. Grow deeper in your faith. Get more serious about what you believe and why you believe it. It is what will enable you to withstand the storms that come in life. So here's the final question for reflection. How solid is the foundation of your faith? Or maybe if we could put it a little bit differently, just a little more bluntly, how confident are you that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the son of the living God? If you've got a thousand other questions about the faith, yes, definitely answer them. But that's the one that you're going to have to wrestle to the ground. 
In fact, you know what you'll learn for the vast 99.9999% of all other theological questions, you and I can have totally different answers and it's okay because the foundation is big enough to support us. Does God predestine people to heaven or hell? Some people will say yes. Some people will say no. That's okay. Foundation's big enough, right? Does, does, uh, you know, I could go on and on. I won't because we're running out of time. The point is this. It's okay for the vast majority of questions if we arrive at different answers. But if we arrive at different answers on this question, who do we say Jesus is? then our very lives in eternity can be at peril for getting this one wrong. So I want to pray for you and I want to give you the opportunity to respond. I, I want to point out something to you. Uh, the last verse of Matthew uh, 16 that we read today, it, it, it is on there. If they can find it, great. Throw it up there. Uh, verse number 17. Jesus blesses Peter for his response, right? I believe you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says something so incredibly important there. He says, listen, you are blessed because it is my father in heaven who has revealed this to you. You didn't learn this from any human being. You believe this, Peter, not because it's what your family believes, not because it's what your wife believes, your husband, I'm picking on husbands, not because it's what your husband believes, not because... You read a textbook, not because, not because of any of those things, but because it's true in your own heart. There's also this reality here that Jesus is hinting at that when we seek answers about the faith, there is an intellectual component to it, but we can't ignore the spiritual. There are some things that are discerned with the mind. And then there are some things that are only ever fully discerned with the soul, with the spirit. And so it's a both and it's not a, oh, I have all the answers and the data. And so I've arrived at a rational conclusion. Faith ain't rational. Okay. Instead, some things are spiritually comprehended. They are revealed by our father in heaven. And so in this moment, I'm not asking you to place your faith in Jesus because you have all the answers. I'm asking you to place your faith in Jesus because you sense God speaking to you right now. Sing, you're my child, and I really want to have a relationship with you. And I want to help you build a solid and steady life. I want to let you ask questions. I want to have a relationship in which we talk to one another. I want you to experience life overflowing. And the only way you will is to receive Christ into your heart. So uh, heads bowed, eyes closed, please, if you don't mind. Let's pray together. And if you say, I'm ready, I don't have all the answers, but I do trust that God is speaking and drawing me in this moment. And whatever it means to be in a relationship with him, to be forgiven of my sins and to be given new life. I want to say yes to that today. I'll invite you to repeat this simple prayer. Jesus, I put my faith in you today. I accept you as my Lord and Savior who paid for my sins on the cross and has given me new life and new purpose by your grace. Thank you for this wonderful gift. Now help me to live life with you every single day. In your name, amen. Guys, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, Tyler's coming up right now. He's going to share with you some ways that we can help you journey uh, with Jesus in the days to come. And for the rest of us, for all of us, really, I'm looking forward to further weeks in this series in, we get to, in which we get to continue to ask God the hard questions and let him satisfy us with faithful answers. 